Chris, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Uh, Chris and I, since we went to college together, we have a truce. Uh, we cannot share stories about each other from stage. Uh, so if you, uh, if you want anything, come find me after the service. You can record me on your iPhone. You can post it on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Whatever you want to do, just come talk to me afterwards. But thank you. Uh, but yes, good morning, City Light. My name is Joe Julian. I am one of the pastors here. Um, and before we get started, I just wanted to say what an honor it is for me to be sharing with you today. Um, uh, my wife, Whitney, and I started coming to City Light in September of 2012, which is crazy to think that's a little over three years ago uh, during the core team phase. Um, and, and, you know, despite being very comfortable and very happy at the church uh, that we were at, uh, we felt like God was calling us to City Light. We felt the call. And so, uh, to be honest, when we came, we had no idea what to expect. Uh, we were coming from a very established church um, to a church where we knew nobody um, in a very beautiful but very broken-down chapel on the corner of 40th and Nicholas with cramped wooden pews and an air conditioner made for a one-bedroom apartment. Yes. <laughs> but we quickly fell in love with what God was doing uh, with the people, with the neighborhood, with the pastors. Um, and, and, and so I, I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Uh, City Light, everyone here, we love you. Um, and I'm very privileged to bring you God's word today. Um, so uh, this morning, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 23. That's where we're going to be camped out. This is the Sunday after Christmas, if you didn't know it, and it's the last Sunday before the new year. Um, and so I'm very aware that many of you may be very, very exhausted from a lot of fun family Christmas parties. I know I am. Um, I also know many of you may be exhausted from a lot of dysfunctional family Christmas parties, um, and I have no comment on that for myself. Um, uh, but may, or maybe this is a lonely season for you. Maybe Christmas time, uh, maybe you've lost someone recently. Uh, maybe this has just a, been a tough season for you to slog through. But either way, there's a good chance you came limping through the door this morning uh, feeling pretty drained. Um, and so the, the theme of the morning is going to be soul care um, and how to care for our soul. Um, and as a good counseling pastor... Um, I wanted to give you some homework. I wanted to give you some practical applications that you could take home with you. You would leave here with a smile on your face, renewed vigor for God, um, and I, in turn, would have a less crowded counseling schedule come Monday morning. Um, but, but as I was preparing that sermon and, and, and perusing through the Bible and studying it, I started to ask the question, how do we best care for our soul? And, and, and the most intriguing thing for me is, as I continue to look at this and continue to dig this out of the Bible, is that the majority of the Bible is not about us and our ability to care for ourselves. The majority of the Bible is about the character of God, his relationship with us, and his provision for us. And so I started to ask the question, when thinking about caring for your own soul, is it more important to have disciplines like a quiet time each day, a consistent prayer life, healthy rhythms, or is it more important to have a right understanding of the God who takes care of our soul? 
While solitude with God is an essential part of the Christian walk and a consistent prayer life is an essential part of the Christian walk and healthy rhythms just help us to be healthy people, these are practices in vain if we're not connecting with the living God. And it's very hard to connect to this God if we live with a misunderstanding of who he is, his character, and and who we are as well. An old English professor, uh, uh, sorry, pastor by the name of Dick Lucas once said, a committed God is far more important than a committed Christian. Um, And and as I thought about that and and kind of processed that in my mind, it made sense. Every time in my own power that I went to to rededicate myself to to reading the Bible consistently, to rededicate myself to, to meet with God in those moments of solitude, to rededicate myself in my own power to, to pray more consistently, one of two things happened. One, I either messed up, and I saw God is wanting to judge me and punish me and take me down, and so I was embarrassed, and I felt bad, and so I, I felt like I couldn't come back into his presence. Or another thing that happened is, is I started to puff myself up. I started to think that I was greater than I actually was, and I started to think, you know what? I don't need to meet with God. I don't need to meet with a person that's going to care for my soul. I think I'm doing a pretty good job on my own. To illustrate this point a little further, let me take you on a little journey into my life as a 17-year-old boy who probably thought he was a 17-year-old man. Um, I, I, I know looking at the person on stage today, it might shock you that there was a time in my life when I didn't have it all put together, when I didn't have it all figured out. Uh, but at 17, I was, I was insecure. I was afraid. Um, I was afraid to fail. Um, in a lot of ways, I was afraid to succeed. But also at 17, I didn't know that yet. I thought I had it going on. I was a moderately popular, mildly athletic junior at the mecca of Omaha area high schools, Omaha Bryan. No, no, you're supposed to say amen. You don't laugh. All right, there's grace for that. That's fine. <laughs> But at any rate, I was fairly smart, but I didn't really apply myself. Um, I, w- I was mainly a B or a C student, um, and I just, just kind of skated through my classes, but I was fine with that. I didn't care. I, I, I thought, you know, everything was going well. My life was, was kind of unfolding the way I thought it, it should. Um, and then chemistry class came up, junior year, 17 years old. Um, and chemistry class was, was taught by the infamous Mrs. Galusha. Now, Mrs. Galusha had a reputation around school on just hating on good-looking elite athletes. And at 17, I was sure I fell into this category. Um, And so, sure enough, from day one of class, this woman was out to get me. She made me do my homework. She called on me all the time. She pointed out when I had the wrong answer and wasn't paying attention. She didn't let me cheat off the cute girl next to me. This woman was awful. (laughs) I was 100% convinced that her job, her job, this is, this is my brain, how it works, her job was to fail four students a year just to make herself feel good about herself. I was also sure I was one of those. Um, and let me tell you, it was working. It was working. Uh, I was failing. I was failing her class, and not just by a few percentage points, um, but like if there was a letter below an F, like a G, they would have given me a G. Um, uh, but at any rate, uh, I was fully convinced this woman was just there to judge me, just there uh, to point out all the ways in which I've gone wrong, all the ways in which I was falling short, there to push me down, and it totally affected me. And church, I wonder how often do we do this with God? How often 
do we see God as, as just there to push us down? How often do we see him just looking to point out where we have gone wrong, just looking to take things away from us when we mess up? How often do we see God as just wanting to punish us for things that we have done and thought? And then more importantly, how do we draw near to a God who we just see as being out to get us? How do we draw near to a God and trust that God in providing for us? How do we enter into the dark nights of our soul with this God? And most importantly, when, when it matters most, how do we trust our salvation with this view of God? And then on the flip side, how often do we see ourselves as more important and, and puff ourselves up bigger than we actually are? And, and maybe in some cases, how often do we see ourselves as, as much smaller than we actually are. You see, City Light Church, this is what I want for us to see today. I want us to see that our, our view of ourselves and our view of God is going to significantly impact the way that we draw near to the God that cares for our soul. So this morning, we're going to sit down in a very popular scripture. You guys all just recited it. Thank you, Mike, for, for leading that for us. Psalm 23. Now, Psalm 23 paints very beautifully some eternal characteristics of God, um, as well as how he relates to us as, as, as his people where we're at. Through Psalm 23, we're going to look at God as the shepherd and God as the host. And through this, we'll see more clearly the character of God, as well as our relationship with him, which will in turn allow us and draw us near to him in all circumstances. So let's dig in. Uh, Psalm 23, we're going to start with verses 1 to 4. I believe we've got a slide. We'll get up on the screen. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now first, let me give a little context to this text. This psalm is written by David. David is known historically as the shepherd king. He started his life out as a shepherd and went on to be the king of all of Israel. So as he paints this picture of us, of a relationship between God and, and his people as sheep, this is coming from personal experience for him. David is a good person from which to learn some of these eternal characteristics of God. As God said of him, this is a man after my own heart. But David is also a good person to learn about the fallen state of man because David sees some of the highest highs and he sees some of the lowest lows of anyone that we meet in the entirety of the Bible. It was believed that David wrote this psalm towards the end of his life, so we know that as he paints this picture for us, as he paints the picture of God shepherding us in both the pasture and the valley, we know that he's writing to us from personal experience. Now let me give you a quick theologically sound rundown of the shepherd and the sheep. Write this down on your notes. The shepherd does everything for the sheep because the sheep are dumb. Kids, dumb is D-U-M-B. One thing about a good shepherd was that he knew his sheep. He cared for them, provided for them, kept them safe from predators, and led them to pastures to be refreshed. The sheep are literally dependent on their shepherd for everything. In fact, a sheep without a shepherd was as good as dead. 
Us being compared to sheep here is not a compliment. In fact, if you want to insult someone that, that they don't think for themselves, that they follow blindly, what do you call them? A sheep, right? It should be an insult. David is not saying be like sheep. He's saying we are sheep. He's, he's calling us what we are. Um, and just to illustrate this a little further, um, I, I found a story from the USA Today in 2005, and, and it jumped out to me because the headline said, 450 sheep jumped to their deaths in Turkey. So let me uh, just uh, give you an idea of these animals. Uh, first, one sheep jumped to its death, then stunned Turkish shepherds who had left the herd to graze while they had breakfast, watched as nearly 1,500 others followed, each leaping off the same cliff. In the end, 450 dead animals lay on top of one another in a billowy white pile. Those who jumped later were saved as the pile got higher and the the fall more cushioned. (laughs) I didn't make that up. I found it. USA Today. These are the animals that we're likened to in this passage. It is clear, without a shepherd, we are hopeless. Thankfully, our shepherd will never neglect us while he's out getting breakfast. Now let's look back and see what the shepherd does for us. We see right away in verse 1, with the Lord as our shepherd, we will not need anything. He's going to take care of our physical needs. We will never be in want. Not only that, we see in verses 2 and 3, God leads us to the places in which we truly need to be. He gives us the rest that we truly need. He restores us. God takes care of every need we have physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Not only does God provide for us, his people, I want you to look at the language that David uses here. Verse 1, the Lord is my, sh- my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. City Light, this is also a personal God. God providing for us fosters an individual relationship with him. God is not airdropping supplies down on us as a community, but he's taking care of our each and individual and intimate needs. He knows you. He knows you better than your spouse knows you. He knows you better than your parents know you. He knows you better than your siblings know you. In fact, he knows you better than you know you. He cares about and delights in you personally. You see, when we see God rightly, it changes our opinion in our view of him. God is not simply a judge. He is a righteous judge. He certainly is, but he is so much more. He is your provider who knows you inside out, and he still loves you. And when you see yourself rightly, how hopeless and helpless you are in and of yourself, it, it pushes you towards the one who cares for and provides for you. City like God is our provider. I want to encourage you to draw near to and trust this personal, this loving God. We see what happens when we trust in ourselves or try life without a shepherd. We end up in a billowy white pile of mess. But when we trust in the shepherd, when we trust in the good shepherd, he is our provider. We will never, ever be in want. Moving on, let's, let's look more closely at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now I want you to notice two things from the text here. First, notice what David takes comfort in. Maybe more appropriately to notice what David does not take comfort in. He does not say, I take comfort in my crown. I take comfort in my sword. Now remember, David is the king of all Israel. And in this period, Israel is expanding. And they're expanding by conquest. So, so David is actually a, a, a big military leader. And so he's led conquest after conquest after conquest. This is also a, a man, if we remember right, um, as a boy, he killed the giant Goliath with a rock. So this guy has a lot that he could trust in, in and of himself, but he doesn't trust in those things. He doesn't say, I trust in my crown. He doesn't say, I trust in my sword. What does he say he trusts in? He trusts in the Lord, in the rod and the staff of the Lord. The Lord comforts him. The Lord leads him in the valley. Notice, secondly, also notice that the language here changes. So verses uh, 1 through 3 um, say uh, David, or David addresses the Lord from a third person. He's talking about God. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. But look at the difference here in verse 4, which also comes as David starts to describe the valley of the shadow of death. What does he do? He starts talking to God. He starts addressing God personally. He starts addressing God as right near him. City Light, as we go through the valley and we go through the tough times, that's when God is nearest to us, and that's what we see um, as David rolls this out. Something happens when we walk through the valley with the Lord, trusting in him, being comforted by him. It fosters this intimacy with him that we simply don't feel in times of plenty, that we simply don't feel in times of prospering. And I know that there are many of you right now sitting in these seats that are in the valley. I know that. And I know that there are days when you're tempted to rely on yourself, to rely on your abilities to get out of the valley. And I just want to encourage you. Draw near to the one who guides you through the valley. Draw near to the only one about whom you can say, I will fear no evil because you are with me. You comfort me. Now, if we could, let's go back to my story uh, when I was 17 in chemistry class. So there I am one day having a perfectly good conversation with one of my neighbors when Mrs. Galusha interrupts me rudely with her teaching. I can tell she's really annoyed now. Uh, but you know what? I've, I've been having these thoughts going around in my head about how she's out to get me. So this time I just don't care. I just keep talking. I keep doing my thing. She deserves it. She's out to get me anyway. She doesn't care about me. And so finally, she kind of hits this breaking point, um, and she says, Joe, I want you to come back with me to my office, which, you know, her office was just right behind the, the classroom. So I remember as I'm getting up and, and, and walking back there, I remember being kind of oddly excited um, because uh, all of these things that had been building up in my head, I was ready to just unleash on her. Like, she had no idea who she had just invited back to her office. I was going to let her have it. And so we get back there. And, uh, and she starts out, and she goes, Joe, what's wrong? And so I give it to her about as good as 17-year-old Joe can do. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, was, I was a bad dude, I can tell you. So she goes on. She says, Joe, you remind me of my son. You're brilliant just like he is. 
In fact, you're probably one of the smarter kids I've had in my classes these last few years. But you know what? How you're like him also is that he doesn't apply himself either. And Joe, this tears me apart. She said, what do you need? She's pleading with me. What do you need? I want to help you. You have so much more potential than you're giving out, than you're giving on. City Light, I, I was speechless. And, 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 and this, honestly, this changed everything for me. Apparently, what I needed to know was that Miss Galusha was for me. Apparently, what I needed to know was that she cared about me. Apparently, what I needed to know is that I had it in me to succeed as long as I let her lead me there. So I started doing better in her class. Like I said, this changed everything. In fact, I started doing better in all my classes. I went from a C student to to pretty much a straight-A student for the rest of my uh, high school career. Um, You see, the way I thought about my teachers changed the way I acted at school. The way I thought about myself changed the way I acted at school. The way you think about yourself and the way you think about God will change the way that you relate to him. City Light, let me ask you, when you picture God looking at you, what do you see? When you mess up, is your first reaction to run away or to draw near to him? When the bills don't line up at the end of the month, are you panicking or are you trusting in God as your provider? When fear and anxiety start to grip you, do you seek God or do you isolate yourself? Christians, the Lord is our shepherd. We are his sheep. When we see ourselves rightly and see him rightly, our first impulse will simply be to be in his presence. Point one, God is our shepherd. Point two, God is our host. Look with me now at verses five and six. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we notice the image of God changes here from shepherd to host. And a host in the culture that David is in was a much bigger deal uh, than it is today. And the, the reason for that is because travel was just significantly harder then than it is now. Uh, my wife and I just traveled probably about 150 miles over the last uh, few days going to various Christmas parties and things like that. And to be honest, it was pretty easy. We sat in our climate-controlled seats. Um, if the kids got loud or, or distracted or grumpy, we, kept, we folded down a, a DVD player from the ceiling to, uh, to help them uh, pass the time. We like to tell each other, and we like to think that travel is stressful, but it's not. It's not. Uh, But in the day of David, it was stressful. They traveled about 20 miles a day max. So going from from town to town was a huge deal. Instead of taking a few hours, it would take days. It would take weeks. Sometimes it would take months. They also didn't have air conditioners or windows that rolled up or anything like that. So not only did it take them forever, they were out in the elements. They were out in the hot sun all day. They were out in the wind. They were out in the dust. They were out in the rain. They were out in the mud. And so by the time they got to where they were going, they were exhausted. They smelled really bad. They were stressed out. um, And they were just kind of at the end of their ropes, And so it was very important for the host to make their home a place of refuge and a place of of restoration, a place of recovery. 
And so when, when the people got to where they were going, their host would anoint their head with oil, which we see there, which was basically a perfume to get the stench of travel off of them. They would wash their feet. They would bring them into their house. They would sit them down at the table. They would have them recline. They would talk to them. They would prepare a meal for them. It was like a party when, when someone came in. And so as a host, it was a big deal to provide this for your guests so they could feel recovered, restored, um, all of those things. And so this is what David is pointing to here. The house of the Lord, which he's talking about, um, is a place of refuge, a place of goodness and mercy filled with the presence of the Lord. Um, and, and I wonder, when, when, we, when we picture God and when we picture coming to the house of God, is this the God that we see? Um, do we see a God running out to us when we arrive? Do we see a God that provides a place for us, that sits down with us, that enjoys us, that wants us to be with him, that just wants us to, to talk with him and sit down and hang out with him? This is the God that David is pointing to here, a God that is excited for you, a God that is excited for you to come into his place after your travels. And so uh, if we look back at verse 5, it actually, it gets better. Um, it, it says, you prepare a table before me in the place of my enemies. Now, why would a table be prepared in, in the place of my enemies? That's kind of weird. But very simply, it means that those enemies have been defeated. So not only is the Lord's house a, a, a place of refuge, but it's also a place of peace because your enemies have been defeated. And then back at verse 5, it also says that my cup overflows when, uh, in that culture, when your host stopped filling your cup, that, mean it w- that meant it was time to go. It meant, okay, it's time for you to go to the inn or, or your room or, or, or whatever it might be. But we know, because we have a cup that overflows, we're never going to have to leave. That's what this, this illustration is pointing to here. And so, church, let's take a step back and look at this, this picture, this visual that David has painted as a whole. So after coming... Through the valley, uh, uh, we, we, we are led to a place of refuge, a place of restoration, a place of peace, a place we will never have to leave. Church, this gives us hope. This is why we can endure the valley no matter what it is. Your valley might be cancer. Your valley might be divorce or broken relationship. Your valley might be depression. It might be anxiety. It might be bipolar it might be alcoholism. Your valley might be perfectionism. It might be religion. It might be moralism. But City Light, think of the day when you enter the Lord's house and you've been given victory over these. You've been given peace with these, and not only these, but all sin. And we know this. We have assurance of this because of what Jesus did for us. In John chapter 10, Jesus says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my down, down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, one more. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You see, Jesus is connecting himself here to Psalm 23. Jesus was the good shepherd that gave up his life so the sheep did not lose theirs. Through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, we as sheep do not lose our lives because of what Christ did for us. <coughs> Excuse me. This is good news. 
As sheep, we have no chance of finding the dwelling place of the Lord on our own. We have no chance of defeating our enemies. We have no chance of finding rest, of finding refuge. But our shepherd gave up his life so that we can find these things. Not only that, he gave up his life so that we are not simply sheep, but we are also his children. We are heirs to the kingdom. If we look back in what he's saying in John, he's saying, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, he's calling us his children there. He's calling us so much more than we deserve as sheep. We are heirs to his kingdom. He takes lowly sheep like us and makes us heir to his throne, his kingdom. Church, let this sink in. This is the character of God. He takes wayward sheep who, compared to him, have enough foresight to follow each other right off the side of the cliff. He cares for us, provides for us, is near to us, and protects us from danger. And then he brings us into his home, into his kingdom, where there is peace and refuge and restoration. And he makes us lowly sheep something more than we ever deserve. He makes us his children. Church, this is the God we follow. This is the God that we worship. In conclusion, so for some of us this morning, we simply need to know that we're sheep. We need to know how helpless and hopeless we are without a good shepherd. We need to know that our hope does not come in our next job, our next house, our next relationship, or our Bible knowledge, or our morality, or our church attendance. We need our provision, our rest, and our direction comes from the Good Shepherd. And for other and for others of us who are in the valley right now, we just need to know that there's peace. There is a place of refuge. We need to know very clearly, or we know very clearly because we're in the valley, how hopeless and helpless we actually are. And we need to know that we have a shepherd who will bring us into his home and make us so much more than we ever deserve. City Light, to find our rest, to find our refuge, to meet the living God, we must see him rightly and we must see ourselves rightly. We are sheep in need of a shepherd. He is our shepherd. And not only that, he is our host. He welcomes us into his home and gives us peace. So not only are we sheep, but at the same time, we are children and heirs to the throne because what he has done for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. You are the shepherd that gave his life so that we might have ours. Thank you for guiding us, for providing for us, for directing us, for being our shepherd. And Lord, thank you for being our host, for welcoming us into our home and giving us something that we totally do not deserve. Thank you for bringing us into your home, giving us refuge, giving us rest, giving us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.